All right. Well, today is also special in that uh, Cindy is going to be bringing today's uh, message. Uh, you, know what's, you know what's fun about this is early on when Cindy was just getting in, into uh, teaching that sort of thing, uh, we, I had the idea because I saw my pastor friend buddies having their, their wives and, you know, uh, teach on Mother's Day. And I was thinking, oh, cool. So we should do that. And I quickly realized, wait a minute, that's not like super like Mother's Day gifty to her. I mean, it is, but it isn't. So we're like, what if we did Father's Day? And so that's kind of the idea today. And uh, I can't wait for you to hear what the Lord's put on her heart. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's, I can't wait. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, it's just weird. What am I supposed to say? It's really good. It is. It's a good word. I'm not biased, but... Uh, today's uh, uh, teaching is from Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse uh, 8, and then we're going to skip to verse 19. So we're going to set the context and then get go to verse 19. So if you're following along in the Bible. By the way, I encourage you, if, if you don't have a Bible, it's totally fine. If you do have one, I encourage you to, to pull it out, even though the words will be also on the screen, because you'll be able to reference and all that. So uh, Deuteronomy 1, starting verse 8, and then down to verse 19. See, I have given you this land. Go and take possession of the land the Lord swore he, he would give to your fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Then, as the Lord our God commanded us, he set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country of the Amorites through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen. And so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord our God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it, as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large, the walls of up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God, who went ahead of you on your journey in, in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out the places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. To all of our amazing dads, um, I'm not just paying lip service because it is Father's Day. We have a crew of really loving dads here at Current that truly deserve these mugs. Um, if you look around every Sunday, you know, before and after our worship gatherings, there's a whole lot of dads just wrangling and carrying their kids in all kinds of creative positions, as our creative team likes to capture. I think we have some up here for you to see. Um, really sweet photos um, of all. I love all the creative ways uh, that dads are able to carry their kids, you know, up high. And uh, in our family, it's a bit of a 
tradition, actually, for David to carry the kids to bed. He's done this since they were very, very little. It kind of, you know, uh, makes it a little less painful for them to go to bed because they get to get up high, you know, or on the back or on the shoulders or, you know, however which way. Um, and the tradition hasn't died, even though they're quite a bit bigger than this now, um, primarily because uh, it is arguably the thing that our dog Corduroy gets the most worked up by in the whole world. I mean, it's uh, really interesting. At first, you know, when he would, you know, get frenzied like this, you know, when David would pick the kids up, we thought it was because he was trying to protect the kids. Like, he thought David was going to hurt them or something because he'd be trying to grab at them and things like that. But after a while, we realized, oh, no, it's just a really bad case of FOMO. Like, he really doesn't want to miss out on the fun. And it's to the point where if he even hears the words, hop on, and the kids are around, like, he just gets up from whatever he's doing, and he just, like, completely flips out. So, of course, David, being David, will do it just to mess with him now. Um, I was actually carried by my dad a lot as a kid, so much so that my mom actually blamed my lack of leg strength on him. Um, she was like, maybe Cindy would run faster if you hadn't carried her everywhere for so long and not allowed her leg muscles to develop properly. Um, I don't know if that's a real thing, but it's one of those family stories that refuse to die. You know how that is. Um, and my brother didn't actually come along until I was four, and as evidenced here, my dad continued to carry me long after that. So if you care about such things and you want your kids to run fast, maybe you don't carry them for too long. Um, but if they're anything like me, they also grow up really secure in the knowledge that their daddy loves them when they're carried around for so long. I was uh, really excited to teach on Father's Day this year. Like some of you, uh, Father's Day is a day that I feel. My dad passed away over eight years ago now, and the pain of it is no longer as sharp, but I still miss him a lot. Those of you who have experienced similar loss or maybe have some brokenness in your relationship with your dad, um, we're in our prayers this morning. I had an awesome dad, not perfect by any means, but fun and gifted and wise and loving. He didn't come to know the Lord until late in his life, uh, less than two years uh, before he passed away, but he ran after God wholeheartedly during that time. I'm grateful to have a lot of peace knowing that he's with Jesus and that we will see him again. So it feels like my great joy and privilege to not only honor the dads in our midst today, but to look together with you at how the Lord God carries us, verse 31, as a father carries his child. What does our society think of when we picture a good father? I googled good father traits this week to see what might rise to the top. At the very top of the results was an advice for men kind of column, and it had an article called 10 Traits of a Good Father. So I click in, and I'm skimming, and there's some good stuff, like a good father loves his children, but he doesn't let them get away with everything. That's solid. A good father realizes that his children are human and that making mistakes is part of growing up. I really like that one. I love stories of parents that will ask their kids, what did you fail at today? And then applaud them to help them not be scared of getting things wrong, right? Keep skimming. He teaches his children to appreciate things. He leads by example. He shows unconditional love. End up being a pretty good article, thank you, Google. Uh, what's awesome is that when you look at the traits and characteristics that our society thinks of when we characterize a good father, they're all just faint glimmers of who God is to those of us that follow Jesus. 
We're in this Knowing God series right now, and it's so awesome to be encouraged by these different aspects and characteristics of this God we follow. Social scientists say that we all live by these mental maps of reality, which uh, are reference points in our minds based on experiences that we've had that help us understand and navigate the world. They shape the narratives of our lives and also our worldview. It's one of the reasons I really love when we have an opportunity to lead a rooted group, which are small group discipleship experiences designed to connect people to God and to others. It takes basic concepts of our faith, like hearing from God, and breaks them down experientially through vulnerable sharing with one another. We get to trace back formative moments on our faith journey, both positive and negative, to unpack how we've put together our mental map of who God is. And it can impact one another's journeys because we've all been formed in very different ways. For me, I didn't grow up in a Christian family. So my map of God actually starts with close family friends from my child who, who made um, a beautiful construction paper poster of the famous passage about love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, does not envy, does not boast. And they gifted it to me when I was five and our family moved from Los Angeles to Rochester, New York. I loved that family. Elisa was my best friend. Verna, her older sister, was so good to me. It was such a kind auntie and uncle. And I now know that they had been praying for our family to know Jesus. And they sent that poster for that exact purpose, to plant a seed about God's love for me. It hung across from my bed my entire childhood. And fast forward many years, that auntie and uncle were generous supporters of Current when we launched back in 2016. So that was one piece of my mental map of God, developed at age five. The second piece was a smell. There weren't that many Asian people in Rochester, New York. So if you wanted your children to learn Chinese, you drove 20 to 30 minutes every Saturday morning to Brown Cross Community Church, where a bunch of Chinese and Taiwanese immigrants rented space to do a Chinese school for their kids. On the walls of these classrooms uh, were pictures of Jesus, and there was a musty smell. I'm really sensitive to smells, so reference point number two on my mental map of God. The third was a little girl named Bora, who I often sat next to on the bus on the way to school. Her family was Korean, and again, there weren't that many Asians, so we kind of related to one another, right? I had kimchi at her house for the first time, and she would always tell me that Jesus loved me. I would kind of smile and nod and be like, oh yeah, my family's Buddhist. Um, but it created a mark uh, in my mental map of God. I could go on and on. That's just until like age seven. But you get the idea. Who we understand God to be is not just an academic exercise. God is always working and uses his people to create experiences for us along the journey that when we stop to recognize, we realize, oh yeah, that was God pursuing me all along. By the way, we're really praying that some of these moments happen at kids' camp this week, and we invite you to pray with us. For those of you that grew up in Christian families, your earliest mental markers of God probably had a lot to do with your parents. That's amazing. When Caleb was baptized last month, I took the opportunity to casually ask around that morning to people who grew up in Asian uh, Christian households how old they were when they were baptized and kind of how that all came about. And it was super encouraging to hear the stories. No human father is perfect, of course. None of us had 
all positive experiences from our dads, but for some of us, our mental map of God is negatively skewed due to the brokenness or absence of a dad in our lives. So I want to recognize that reality this morning, even as we honor the dads in our midst, that although awareness of the formative experiences in our lives is super important, both positively and negatively, ultimately, our study of who God is in scripture is the most important. It tells us who God is, and we can check our experiences against it. Like a good human father tries to do, we follow a God who makes good promises, provides generously for us along the way, is faithful to fight for us, and guides us along our journey, even as our human tendency is to distrust the provision, doubt his protection, and disobey his commands to move or stay. We'll see the Israelites and their relationship with God as they journey out of Egypt to the promised land as a case study for our own lives and how to live with a deeper trust that God is for us in the way that we would hope a good father is for his child with the knowledge that only God can father us in the most holistic kind of way. The passage we are in today is from the book of Deuteronomy, a book that contains the last words of Moses to the people of Israel at the precipice of finally entering the promised land in Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. The realization of the Lord's promises to them is imminent after 40 long years. These words of Moses are intentional and full of exhortation as he reflects back on what they have been through together. This journey that has taken four decades when it could have taken 11 days due to the Israelites' disobedience, doubt, and distrust of God. He speaks undoubtedly with both pain and deep wisdom, knowing that he will not be going with them because of the disobedience of the previous generation, encouraging and exhorting them to remember their God who has led and fought for them and not to repeat the disobedience in this generation, to move forward with courage and trust in God. Sounds a lot like what we need too, doesn't it? There is so much I need courage to trust God for in my life right now, today. Reminders and perhaps the eyes to see God's faithfulness in my life to this point and the trust to go when he says go, stay when he says stay. Just like the Israelites, when I'm honest with myself, I know my relationship with God is an ever-repeating cycle of faithfulness on his part and falling short on my part. But the beauty is that God doesn't leave us there. He carries us even in that frustrating cycle. And there is freedom for our souls as we learn to follow him better and better in this life by his grace all the way to eternity. Let's look at a few ways we see in this passage that God has been faithful to the Israelites and how the way they respond helps us to understand our own tendencies in relationship to God. Like a good father, God provides gives hope for the future, and is faithful to fight for us. We see multiple times in this passage references to the promises that God made to the Israelites through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three deeply flawed human fathers who are nevertheless given material and spiritual promises from God for the sake of future generations. And what are these promises? They're ultimately hope, a beautiful future to cling to and keep their eyes fixed on as they journey. 
Verse 8, the Lord swore he would give this land to your fathers. In this verse, Moses is referring to the promise made by God to Abraham for the first time in Genesis 12, a famous chapter where he calls Abraham and his descendants to, uh, and his descendants to be his people. It's a twofold promise. The first one is uh, a tangible, albeit improbable-seeming promise that the 75-year-old childless Abraham and his wife Sarah, who is way past childbearing age, would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be numerous as the stars, and they would inherit the land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey. And then two, that through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. A spiritual promise that's hard to even wrap our heads around, and we'll get back to the second promise later. The first promise is very significant in understanding this passage that we are in today because it was reiterated way more than once by God. It's given to Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, reiterated to Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, and then again to Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28. Based on the oral culture and the context that we're talking about during this time, it would have been very clearly passed down to the Israelites that we're talking to, that this land had been given or provided to them by God, that God had told them it was good and given them direction to take possession of it despite the human barriers that they see, the size and the strength of the inhabitants, the fortifications of the cities. On top of this, God fights for them all along the way, as referenced in verses 30 to 33. He performs miracle upon miracle to bring them out of Egypt, dealing with their oppressor using 10 plagues, like water turning to blood, frogs, lice, flies, livestock pestilence, boils, hail, more, then parting the Red Sea uh, so as they get trapped, right, as they're trying to escape. In the desert and wilderness, when they have no food, the Israelites grumble and look back with rose-colored glasses on the pots of meat they had eaten as slaves. In gracious response, God provides quail and manna for them with quail flying into the camp each night. And manna, which literally means, what is it? A white edible substance that tasted like honey appearing in the mornings for them to gather. A faithful provision. Then the Israelites are thirsty, and they grumble to Moses about it, and God provides water from a little rock, right, at Horeb, that he tells Moses to strike, and water pours out. God more than faithfully provides for the Israelites and covers them despite their grumbling and short-term memories, not only for their basic human needs, but a sense of hope for the future, a promise to cling to and look forward to. So how do the Israelites respond? They distrust God's timing, doubt his protection, and don't believe in his goodness. We talked about the grumbling. In verse 27, Moses recounts, you grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us, so he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Whoa there, are we talking about the same God? The one who parted the Red Sea to help you escape from Egypt, who has shown he's for you in every way along the journey. You believe that he hates you. Okay. There are more than a dozen recorded stories of the Israelites grumbling and complaining in the wilderness, which given that scholars estimate was a nation of about two million people adds up to like a whole lot of complaining, right? What is grumbling at its root? On the surface, maybe it's a lack of grit or perseverance, which let's be real, we all experience at times, right? Like life gets hard, we get tired of the monotony. It can also reflect a tendency to see the glass as half empty, right? Uh, see the worst in a situation. But at its core, grumbling seems to be a distrust that the powers that be are for you. The Israelites did not trust 
God's timing, his provision, or his protection. They didn't believe that God was for them. God has been nothing but faithful to Israel. There is literally no place on this journey that he has let them down. It has not been an easy journey, but he has not failed them ever. Yet they were not convinced that God loved them or that he could be trusted, despite all the evidence that he was protecting and leading them. In fact, they decided that God hated them. Let's take this one step further. Look at how Moses recounts the moment four decades prior when they had arrived and were ready to enter Canaan to take the good land that God had promised to deliver to them from their enemies, starting in verse 20. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you the land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route we are to take and the towns we will come to. What are the Israelites doing here? They're distrusting the provision and direction that God has made clear through their forefathers and through Moses in that moment. Despite the clarity of the promise and the commands to move, they wanted proof. The idea seemed good to me, Moses goes on. So I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe. They left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshcol and explored it. Taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Duh! But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They say, the people are stronger and taller than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God who is going before you will fight for you as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God. Moses is recounting with pain and disbelief how four decades prior, just as they were on the precipice of fulfilling God's amazing promise to them, the Israelites balked. They didn't believe God that the land was good and they wanted to see it before they took the risk. Then when the report came back and there was stuff to be scared about, which God had said that there would be, alongside a promise to fight for them, they refused to go. They didn't trust God. Moses seems to regret approving the decision to send spies. There was no compelling reason to send for spies other than doubt and disbelief. God had told them they would be able to take this land and that it was good. So we see that the Israelites don't trust God's timing, God's protection, God's promises for their future. They're afraid and they disobeyed. This is such a great picture of the human condition and our faith journeys. Nowhere in scripture does God promise us a comfortable, risk-free, struggle-free life. Nowhere. One of the greatest fallacies of the Christian experience in America and one of the biggest barriers to our authentic witness in this generation is that our faith has gotten conflated with comfort in the American dream. And we don't even have to be American to believe that. The lie that you deserve blank is one of the most insidious that the enemy can use to push us away from God's purpose for our lives. 
If God has not provided us specific things in a specific time that we've subconsciously decided that we deserve, we quickly draw the conclusion that he must not love us. You guys, I've been there. I literally have journal entries that ask God, I don't understand. I thought we were following you. I gave up X, Y, and Z for you. Why is this so hard? Why do I feel stuck? Why is this or that happening? My questions, perhaps like yours, are raw and real, and it's good to cry them out to God. The scriptures encourage and invite us to be reverently honest with him. But ultimately, as I worked it through in that season, as I wrestled with God, as I allowed people who love the Lord and know me to speak into my life, I realized that I wasn't actually asking the right questions. My questions were not understanding the root of the gospel and our purpose here as followers of Jesus. Unbelief and lack of trust are the biggest weapons the enemy has for our lives. The enemy wants us to believe that God can't be trusted. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3 and the first instance of sin in scripture. The lie is, trust yourself, brilliant human, and your own desires. They will guide you to the best life, so take it, seize it, follow your heart. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits back in the 1500s, defines sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. John Mark Comer, a former pastor and author, writes, this is why the devil's primary target is our trust in God and his truth as it comes to scripture. If he can get us to doubt God and instead trust in our own inner intuition as an accurate compass to the good life, he has us. He writes that the lie that we are all deeply susceptible in our daily lives is God's not as good or as wise as he claims to be. He's holding out on you. You should not trust him. You should trust yourself. If you seize control and do things your way, you'll be happier and life will be better. Fathers, mothers, parents, this gets multiplied by approximately a bajillion when we have kids. Okay, so maybe the lie goes something like this. God's not as good or as wise as he claims to be. He's not going to take care of my kids. I should not trust him to protect or give favor to them. I should trust myself and my resources and my own wisdom to shield them. If I just seize control and protect them my way, they will be happier and life will be better. In our work, we are privileged to listen to a lot of deep struggles. Very real stuff that I guarantee all of us go through in one way or another. But you know what's crazy? As we struggle, if we peel back the onions and really try to understand all these struggles, including my own, we find that they more often than not can be traced back to this lie. The root of the lie is a struggle to understand that God loves us. We become hindered in moving when he says to move, in staying when he says to stay, in trusting his promises because we have a desire or a demand that he hasn't fulfilled. Let's think about it from a parenting perspective. If our kids held us hostage every night and said, I am not going to bed until you give me another serving of ice cream. <laughs> I think most of us would say that giving into that demand is not good parenting, right? Or let's get a little more real. God, I've been waiting so long for a soulmate, for a child, for this job, for my marriage to heal, for this opportunity to work out, for this brokenness in my life to be delivered. Why have you not provided it? Does this mean you don't love me? 
We want him to show up in the timing and in the way that we are expecting. It's like we're driving on a highway and looking for a sign on the right and on the left on where to turn. And we keep driving and driving, getting more and more frustrated that God is not showing us. We're tired. We're hungry. We need to go to the bathroom. God, why are you not showing up? When in fact, there's been a GPS on the horizon the entire time. And if we were just to look up, we would have known how to move. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God has already given us the ultimate proof of his great love for us. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. By carrying all of our brokenness in his body, on his body when he went to the cross and rising again on the third day, Jesus carries us into the ultimate promised land. But like the Israelites, while the promise might be there, we have to make the choice to step in. Many of us balk like this they did, asking for proof, asking for circumstances, and only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we step in and receive by faith the promise that God wants to give us. The hope of eternity with God in the most beautiful place, with no more tears and no more pain. A promise that the brokenness here in this world is not all that there is. If you've never received the hope of Jesus and you would like to do so today, we would love the opportunity to pray with you. You can put something on your connection card. You find someone at the welcome table. Come up and talk to one of us so we can have the privilege to pray with you. For those of us that already follow Jesus, the promise God gives us is of his leadership in our lives, not provision of specific circumstances, comfort, good things not even specific answers to prayer. Although I can testify to many situations when God's answers to prayer have been way better than a specific way that I asked. The question that he ultimately wants to know is are we willing to follow? Do we believe that he has plans for us, plans that are for our good and not to harm us, plans to give us hope and a future? God wants us to walk by faith and not by sight. By sending the spies, the Israelites were walking by sight and not by faith. Now, you might be thinking at this point, great, I see the logic, okay, but what does a faithful response to God's leadership actually look like in my day-to-day -day life? It's not like I'm wandering through the wilderness or battling big, giant-like people like anything that the Israelites faced. Let's get into a couple of applications for what God might want for us from this passage and ways that we can actively respond, even this week. The first one is to look back and remember God's faithfulness. Moses does this in verses 30 to 31. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you, as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a father carries his son, all the way until you went, reached this place. As part of the lie that God can't be trusted, the enemy likes to make us forget God's faithfulness in our lives. And remember, with rose-colored glasses, our life before Jesus, before we took a step of faith. Like the Israelites, we might remember pots of meat, but completely forget the context that we were in shackles, emotionally, spiritually, or otherwise. It can help a whole lot on our journey to take the time to remember how God has carried us. Some practical ideas for this. Spend quality time with old friends, people that will point you to Jesus. Maybe you only see them once a year to catch up and figure out what God's 
doing in each of your lives. I found in my own life that this is incredibly powerful in helping me to process the big picture. It's college friends. It's that one friend I always call, or it's a few launch team members that have walked with us for years. Quality time with these people is life-giving and helps me connect the dots of what God is doing in my life and what he's doing in theirs. If you're a new Christian, now is the time to develop these formative friendships and to start these traditions. Ask somebody from group to coffee and ask somebody to grab lunch after church, even today. Find some people that will point you to Jesus and help you remember what he's done in your life. Another idea, I'm not a hardcore journaler, I value it, but I learned this practice last year called the Prayer of Examine, which is a contemplative prayer practice led by memory. It's an encouragement to look back on our day, or if it's been a while, to look back on our week, replaying what's been going on in our lives and asking for God's presence in it, trying to find God's presence in it. It's a prayerful reflection that I found is really helpful to see God's goodness in my life and ways that he is showing up. So now I keep more of what's like a gratitude journal. I don't write in it every day, but I bullet point. I don't write a lot. It helps me remember kind of ways that God has shown up that day or that week. So it helps us to look back and remember God's faithfulness. It's also important for us to be looking for his leading and be willing to wait for the next move. In verse 33, Moses recounts their journey through the wilderness that God went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way that you should go. As they journey through the desert, God goes ahead to guide them, leading them through a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. So they literally just have to move when he moves and stop when he stops, right? God tells them what to do step by step. And that sounds amazing in some ways, but I also know plenty of people that struggle with being given step-by-step instructions, especially here in the Silicon Valley. We want to do it in our way, in the most innovative way, in our own time. We want to know the big picture so that we can get there more efficiently. Um, And we get frustrated or even maybe even feel insulted if we're only given a step at a time. The reality is that this guidance on the Israelites' journey, God is revealing just a little of the game plan at a time. He doesn't show them the whole map at once. He's asking for obedience and trust in the moment. It's like amazing race. Teams get the next clue when they figure out how to get to the next clue box. Our spiritual and life journeys are not linear, and sometimes God gives us detours or roadblocks. But like the best father, God guides us with just enough information for us to get to the next clue, even as he gives us hope of a beautiful, eternal finish line. Trusting God's plan sometimes means waiting. It can mean being faithful with the little things before he shows us more. It also means trusting the bigger plan. I was part of an amazing cohort for church leaders over the last year focused on providing a monthly rhythm of rest and care for our souls coming out of the pandemic. I was super grateful. It was incredibly timely, as you can imagine. But one of the most amazing parts of it is when we showed up for the Tuesday evening retreats, we knew we were checking our decision-making at the door. We would not be told what was happening that night. We were not given a schedule. We were not given a plan, which, as you can imagine, for a bunch of leaders was highly unusual. Not only that we're not studying the flow or making any decisions, but we don't even really know what's happening next. It's a practice and trust and resting in the agency of someone you trust. That's how God wants us to live, and it is really hard. I am a planner. I want God to give me the roadmap. 
but it's beautiful when we can rest and trust that he knows what's three steps down the line, and that's good enough. Another potential application is that obedience can look like making life choices that go against the current. The current around us at work, in our news feeds, in society is not generally moving us toward Jesus. When the Israelites balked and sent out spies at the entrance to Canaan, the evidence brought back was mixed, right? There was tangible evidence of the productivity of the land and that it was good as God had said it would be. And there were also reports of a lot of barriers and situations to be afraid of. There were just two out of 12 spies, Caleb, who was recorded as following the Lord wholeheartedly, and Joshua, that focused on the good parts of the report, saying we should move forward, trusting God to deal with the barriers. Are we looking for those one or two voices? There are times in our life when it's wise to look for resonance from all the voices. But if a trusted voice that loves Jesus disagrees with the crowd or what society would tell you to do, it might be good to take a close listen and time to discern if it might be God. When David and I made the choice to go to China the year after we got married, it wasn't a super organized thing. We specifically hoped to work with local young professionals because we had experience on short-term trips in the past. It was difficult, although a lot of uh, college students were coming to faith, it was difficult kind of in that society and in that country uh, to be able to find and be connected to a gospel-believing church and community afterward. We talked to a few networks, but um, we still had to find our own tent-making covers to get there. So we ended up just quitting our jobs as soon as David got a teaching job in Beijing and we knew that we would have visas. We figured I'd just find my tent-making situation when we got there. I was working for Gap at the time, and after I shared the news, my coworkers literally took me out to dinner and karaoke to stage an intervention. They were like, what are you doing? Why are you leaving this amazing job to go and do your husband's work? I did the best I could to share our faith, um, that you know we felt led to go and reach young professionals, but none of them were, were Christian. Um, they were trying to make me feel like an idiot, and they were kind of successful, because you can ask David, I came home and I cried. My parents also disapproved. They came to visit and staged their own version of an intervention. I still remember the conversation in their hotel room. They weren't Christian at the time, and they couldn't understand why we were throwing away great jobs to do this. I still remember my dad saying, calling, I don't understand this calling because I do not know this God that calls you. It felt to me like a very painful moment at the time. But there was one or two voices that validated the calling, and so we quit anyway, and as he tends to be, God is faithful. A couple weeks later, as we were packing up to go, I got an email from someone that did international strategy for Gap, letting me know that they had heard we were moving to China. They were trying to launch the brand there, and would I want to help figure out the e-commerce? Not only did this provide for us financially and as a tent-making cover for our being there, it ultimately provided access to a lot of local young professionals that we were hoping to be able to share the gospel with. And I think provided a God-sized answer to the what are you doing question from that circle of coworkers and from my parents. My dad was very, very career-driven his entire life. And I believe strongly that God graciously used the provision of an even better job in China after I had gone against his wishes and quit the job in San Francisco to demonstrate his power and his sovereignty to my dad to start to break down the barriers and my dad's resistance to this God that called us. Because two years later, my dad got cancer. And a few months later, he made a decision to follow Jesus and was baptized. 
even as I tell this story, I'm still kind of incredulous because only God can work stuff out like this. We cannot make this stuff up and it's not possible to make a strategic plan for it. That's why the only sure compass we can have as we make choices in our lives to live is to live for God's kingdom first, to do our best to be faithful with how he's leading and what he's put in front of us in that moment and live with trust that he knows the plans that he has for us, that he knows his plan for our kids, for those we love. Because ultimately, there is no perfect human father. There is no perfect dad who can make your life complete. Only God can do that. And it should be a massive load off your shoulders, dads. As awesome as you all are, you are all very broken, as we all are. Okay? You will not do this perfectly. Our passage today starts with a reference to the promise God makes to three generations of flawed fathers, right, that didn't get it all right. We talked about how this promise is delivered repeatedly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, despite their generational sin patterns. Abraham struggled with lying when he was under pressure. He said that his wife Sarah was his sister because he was afraid he would get killed and they would take her. The pattern continues with Isaac, who does the same thing with Rebecca. Then Jacob, Isaac's son, is literally nicknamed the deceiver because the pattern of lying has become so ingrained. They also struggle with favoritism. Isaac is favored. And then he grows up and favors Esau, while Rebecca favors Jacob. And then it gets him into all kind of lying trouble because they're stealing birthrights and all kinds of stuff. Then Jacob has favorites too. Joseph gets this special robe from his dad, which gets him into all kinds of trouble with his jealous brothers, and on and on and on. I find the concept of generational sin totally fascinating. Trust me, we all carry it. Dads and moms alike, we will not get it all right. A good father, we would hope, not only ensures that their child is clothed and fed, that they have opportunities to take meaningful action within safe boundaries, but that their compass is pointing in the right direction. We talked earlier about the two promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12. And we said we'd get back to the one where it said, through his descendants, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus was the descendant of Abraham. Jesus came out of that lineage of favoritism, lying, and all kinds of other messed up stuff. And through Jesus, we all have the opportunity to fulfill that promise by receiving what he's done for us on the cross. We too can be blessed. Ultimately, our most important job as a father, as a mother, as a person is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly and to point our kids to Jesus, period. For the Israelites, God provided the hope of Canaan, this land flowing with milk and honey that they would one day enter. For those of us that follow Jesus, it's modeling and passing down a hope of eternity that this life is not all that there is. In moments of despair or discouragement, fixing our eyes on Jesus such that our child learns to do the same. Jesus came so we didn't have to be the perfect father, parent, or person. Let's rest in that. Look for each next step he gives us to take and enjoy the journey. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your leadership in our lives. We desire to surrender to that this morning. Whatever it is that is on our minds and on our hearts, whatever choices are in front of us, struggles that we are wrestling with you over. Lord, we pray that you would meet us, Lord, that you would remind us of your faithfulness, that you would send people, Lord, to encourage and to guide, 
in the way that we should go. Lord Jesus, we trust you. We ask um, for your Holy Spirit to be working in our midst this morning and uh, that you would help the fathers in our midst to know how much they are loved by you. It's in your son's name we pray.